0: Father in heaven, we're just thankful for the opportunity to be at this conference, for the blessings it has been already. We just ask that you would help us along in the things that we need to know, the things that we need to pursue, that we might have more life as you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in this class, we're going to learn about soil tests and soil testing. This is not... This may be something. Of course, I assume that there's how many people garden in the class or farm, market farm. So quite a few of you. How many of you have taken soil tests in the past? Okay. Um, it would be interesting if I were to if I were to ask if each of you had your soil tests here and, and you would uh, hold them up so everybody could see them. I bet you would see a wide diversity uh, of information. So in this class, what I want to try to do is first of all help you to learn the language of the soil test so that it's meaningful to you because some people have a high degree of experience and knowledge with them they can get a soil test and they know what to do with it right away or they at least know what to do with it in relation to what they have been doing whether it's what they should be doing you know might be a different question um, so we want to do that we want to we want to look at why take a soil test we need to look at um, Is there another way? And how do I know what to expect out of a soil test? What lab should I use? Okay, so we're gonna try to get through those things in this hour, and in the next hour, we're gonna we're gonna actually look at some soil tests. We're gonna look at those numbers on the soil test, and we're gonna try to help you make sense of what they mean. And also um, what you should expect from a soil test. What you should expect if you send in to get a soil test and to get uh, results back what are you expecting from it? So we'll hopefully get that covered in the next two sessions here. So um, The first question we have to ask is and I'm gonna just pardon me here I'm gonna grab my my changer so I don't have to go up all the time. Why test your soil? Um, I have two tw- uh, 20-year-old twin girls who love to cook. The problem is they don't like following recipes. And that might be okay for a chef who has practiced the culinary arts for years and years and years. But what did they first have to learn? I always tell my girls, you've got to follow the recipe first. What's the difference between a chef who doesn't need to follow a recipe and somebody that needs to follow a recipe? Experience. Experience. They, they know, they've learned how condiments interact with food. They learned how different foods interact with each other. I had a really good friend who was a, who was a caterer and she made fantastic food. But the interesting thing is she didn't follow recipes, and when she would increase, when she would increase the volume of a recipe, she didn't necessarily increase everything that she was putting into that because she un- understood very well the dynamics of the condiments and how they, they affect the flavor and how more is not necessarily better. Um, and so what about uh, what about um, I listened to a musician one time, and it was in a, a worship, and he was playing a piano and he, he asked the, the group there, give me three notes and I'll make a song for you. And somebody gave him three notes and within just a matter of seconds he started playing a song, yeah. music. I have kids, we have a piano and I have kids who like to play the piano, and uh, what I hear is not necessarily music (laughs) all the time. Um, There was actually someone in that group when we we were in that worship, and that person gave them three notes, and the, the man said, well, I can't really make a very good song out of that, but I'll try. Now that told me something about his understanding, his knowledge and understanding of the science of music. He had he had a foundational knowledge of what made good music, how to how to make good music. My kids were just kind of making it up as they went. They didn't really they didn't really know anything about it. I do have a 23 year old daughter who is a concert pianist, and uh, she can make fantastic music. And um, not only understanding the science of it she understands the emotive force of it the understanding how to make the music give understanding to what what's being played giving emotion to that music bringing it to life Um, there are spiritual lessons in all of this our time is so restricted on trying to cover material that it's hard to really to to bring everything out Um, what about if you took your car to an auto mechanic and he told you, yeah, well I went to school for all of that stuff but I don't really, I don't really agree with what they taught me. And So I'm just going to, I'm going to fix your car the way I think I, it ought to be done. Would that make you a little nervous? As opposed to, now there are mechanics if you would go and they would, you would tell them what's going on they say, oh well it's probably this. Well how do they know? It's probably this. They have a foundation and they have experience that they're basing that, that knowledge on. If you, want, if you want to know what the condition of your soil is, how are you going to find out? Let me ask you this question because we, we have to kind of answer this one in the first place. Is, a, is there a science to music? What about the internal combustion engine? Does it work a very specific way? And you can't just go and decide, well, I'm going to make it do this or I'm going to make it do that. Um, If we could go through a a whole different set of illustrations, we have to settle the idea that the soil is designed to function in a very specific way. If we can't agree on that, then um, it's every man for himself. My, my ideas are as just as good as anybody else's ideas out there no matter how much knowledge or experience they have because there is no basis, there is no design, there is no foundation to look at to determine you know, what we should do. So I will assert to you that there is a model and there is only one model that's correct. Now, I know some people might have a hard time with that, but if you have a hard time with that, then you're going to have a hard time with Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is there more than one God? Is there more than one model for life? There isn't. You know, the Spirit of Prophecy says about the medical ministry that there are a lot of ways to practice. I'm paraphrasing. There's a lot of ways to practice it. Has anybody read that? There's a lot of ways to practice the healing arts, What's the rest of it say? There's only one that heaven approves of. So there's lots of different ways you could do it. And as part of Sabbath school, I'm going to share how you can actually use things that are good and of themselves and actually degrade life. And leave life in a much worse place than it was before. So we need to have some standard of measure to determine what the condition is and what the condition needs to be. And we're going to talk a little bit later about some of the factors that will affect that. But So if you want your soil to be what it should be, you need to have some standard to measure it against. Now, um, let's see, I didn't put this thing in, so I'll just use this. So if we want to know, you know what conditions of the soil should be, we need to measure it against a standard that's going to tell us what it should actually be. So you need to test your soil. Just like we would read the Bible, we would measure ourselves against who? We would measure ourselves against Jesus. The Bible says that we shouldn't compare ourselves among ourselves. And I see this happen in, in a lot of things in life. I see it happen in agriculture as much as anything. Have any of you heard of the Back to Eden Method? Um, what Can everybody hear me okay? That's for the recording. Okay, she put it on, so it should be okay. Um, Do you think that works all the time? I guarantee it doesn't work all the time because I've I've had friends who knew better. But what what happens here? We want some magic solution that's just going to take all of our problems away, right? So we fall for this stuff all the time. There's just that that one thing, if we just do it, you know, we won't have to ever do anything again. And and everything will just be all worked out and stuff. And so we compare ourselves among ourselves. Is there anything wrong with the principles involved with the Back to Eden method? Absolutely not. But the real question is, and I could, you know, bring up a lot of different things. I just, I have some pretty profound experiences with that one with other growers. Uh, I'll just share one of them. It happened to be out in Colorado and, and uh, you know, he didn't have the soil conditions for that to work for him. He had high potassium, high magnesium soils. They were tight. They didn't, they didn't water didn't penetrate well and it didn't drain well and everything. Does anybody know what happens when you put uh, mulch over something like that? What does mulch do? It helps to hold moisture. Now I already told him what he needed to do. He was deficient in calcium. That soil needed to be opened up. It needed to be able to breathe. It needed to be able to drain. Um, and somehow or another, he didn't manage. To, he didn't manage to to get to that. But this other came along and he heard about it and he listened to it and all. It just sounded great. Just you know, put that on and it'll take care of it for me. Well, I I happened to meet him. I was at a uh, convention and I, I saw him coming and I could tell he was coming like a dog with a tail between his legs. <laughs> Uh, and he came over and sat down. I just grinned. I said, what did you do? And he said, you heard of the back to Eden method? And I said, yeah, you didn't do that, did you? he said, yeah, I did. I brought a whole bunch of compost in and a whole bunch of mulch and, and spread it out. And I said, yeah, I said, I bet that didn't go so well, did it? He said, no, my whole, this is, now this is an area, remember, that gets about 15 inches of rain a year. That's it. That summer happened to be a little bit wetter, they got 20 inches that year, and a lot of the rain in Colorado comes in the summer, they call the monsoon season. Um, so we got a little bit more rain at that time of year than normal, and his yard was a swamp. It was just a total swamp. And he had to tear it all out, he spent all that money and all that time putting it in, he had to come in and take it all off and take it all out. And I said, are you going to do the right thing now? he said, yeah. <laughs> there are laws that govern life. And there are aspects to that model. And any one of those aspects is relative. It's important. But not to the exclusion or the ignorance of, of any other part of it. So um, moving on, is, this, there's, is there another way? I was over in Australia giving the soil fertility presentations that I usually give in uh, early December, and Alan Fisher, one of the the gentlemen over there, gave a history of Avondale. And, of course, he shared the dream that Mrs. White had about the furrow. And so at lunchtime, one of the people that was attending my class asked, how did Jesus teach us before we had soil tests? It's a good question. Well, first of all, God can teach us like that if we need, he needs to. If we're willing and we're desirous, he can teach us we need to. But our bigger problem here is, and is there another way? Let me just answer the question off the bat. Yes, there is another way. Has anybody heard, and some of you shared, I've shared this because I've been visiting with you, so forgive me if you're having to hear it again, but it's worth repeating anyway. Has anybody heard the phrase, a field, that field walks easy. It's one of my favorites, so that's why I keep sharing it. That field walks easy. Has anybody heard it? What do you think the farmer is saying when he says that field walks easy? It gives under your foot, right? It feels like more like walking on carpet or something, where there's a little bit of give to it. What he's saying is the calcium level is really good in that soil. It's well flocculated. That's what he's saying. I had a, a, um, an old-time naturopath. We were walking, and we were trying to reclaim and restart this old unit that Madison had started years ago that had been sitting there kind of defunct for a while. And he was still living there, and, and we went for a walk in this old orchard. The trees weren't, weren't bearing very many apples anymore. And he said, he said a couple things to me. He said, one, you know what the problem with those trees are? He said, those trees, all the energy is going to maintaining the tree and not bearing fruit. But the one I want to share is uh, that he said, another thing you need to know, because I just moved to that, that place, he said, another thing you need to know is when the peepers start peeping in the trees, it won't freeze anymore. The peeper is a little tree frog. And so I tested him for the next two years. And sure enough, when those little tree frogs started peeping in the trees, it didn't freeze anymore what am I, what am I saying to you? What I'm saying to you is, we've become pretty dull in our perception. We're not immersed in the natural world anymore. We're not very observant of it. We're not very perceptive to it. In fact, animals are a lot more sensitive to their surroundings than human beings are anymore. We don't live in that world anymore. We live in a man-made world. Now, a lot of you in this class hopefully don't, don't have to live that way, but um, you can learn from nature. You can there are books written. There's there are books written on the plants that are growing on your soil and what they're telling you about the chemistry of that soil. You can learn that. You can you can learn by observing. You know what grows when it grows. There's a whole host of knowledge that can be gained, and in fact, all of that heritage knowledge is rapidly dying away. The younger generations are not availing themselves of, of that heritage. But what I say to you is that you can do that. And I would certainly encourage I do that. I don't discourage you from doing that. But it may take you 20, 30, 40 years to acquire a sufficient knowledge and understanding of those indicators in nature to really competently... Um, address the conditions in your soil. The spirit of prophecy, yeah, Mrs. White us, told us why the spirit of prophecy was given. The spirit of prophecy was given because our eyes were kind of blind and our ears were kind of dull. And so we needed some help to understand. That's the way I look at soil tests. Are they absolutely essential without any other options? No. There are other ways, but it depends on how long you want to wait to change, to make things better. So you do have that option. Um, I strongly encourage people, until you have some working experience, now there's some some of you folks that have been, around, been in the country your whole lives, have been in, around agriculture. I grew up around agriculture. But it's interesting how when you've set your mind, and I've shared this before, we don't have time in the class here, that you know, I didn't want to be a farmer. I grew up around agriculture. I saw the problems, the growing problems and difficulties that were, were happening in agriculture. And so my mind turned away from it. And when my mind turned away from it, my perception, my, my, my um, sensitivity to a lot of what was going on around me kind of turned away with it. But <coughs> I don't discourage us from doing that. We should ask the Lord. I'm going to actually share that on, on Sabbath to, to open our eyes and help us to see and to hear and be aware of what's around us. The truth is most people are not mindful of anything or anybody Around them, they're barely making it through life themselves, and it's until we get to a condition where we're pressed down and overflowing that we become mindful of those around us. So, yes, there is another way. I suggest that you take advantage of the opportunities that God's given to more rapidly reform. Take advantage of the the knowledge that's been um, made available so that we can increase life sooner than later okay this is a big question if I asked each of you you all raise your hands you had soil tests done you're probably gonna give me each some of them may be the same some of them are, are not uh, they're gonna be different which one is right well that's not really the question to ask um, the question to ask is, what is the basis of that test? What is the model that's being followed? Or is there, a, is there a model that's being followed? You know, a lot of people, a lot of labs, let me just share this experience to help illustrate this. There was a guy, he was, in, uh, he was actually in, in graduate, undergraduate school out in California, and he was working in the lab there Um, to earn money to help pay for school. And so he was running the the soil analysis in the lab. And he would give the the lab results to the agronomist, and then the agronomist would, would write the recommendations based on the soil analysis. And finals time came around. You know, it got really busy. And one of the things he had noticed in his time working in the lab there is that it didn't matter what numbers were on the analysis, the agronomist seemed to write a recommendation simply based on what the the grower had said he was going to grow. And so he was busy, he stressed out, needing to study for his finals and everything, so he said, well, if he's not going to use the numbers, then why bother running the analysis? So he just started writing numbers down, you know, entering numbers on the, the lab report and handing them to the agronomist. And it was totally, it didn't matter because the agronomist wasn't, wasn't using those to, to make the recommendation. Um, now, a lot of people are very cynical about soil tests as a consequence of this kind of thing. Because a lot of times a recommendation will be given by, okay, well, you live in North Texas and you live in South Texas or you live over here. You're in an alkaline soil. You're in an acid soil and so they'll they'll make the recommendation based on a generalization of of where you are and what you're going to grow. What they're doing is they're address, they're feeding the crop. They're just addressing growing that crop and getting a yield rather than feeding the soil. When I say that I'm talking about I always interchange the two the 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 character, the condition character of the soil. You're changing, you're addressing the condition or the character of that soil. You want to restore a complete and balanced condition. Now, the reason a lot of these these people do this is because they don't believe that there's a a correct model. They don't believe that there's a standard to be measured by. And so that's why they don't do it. I don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily accuse them of any kind of deviant behavior where they're trying to deliberately uh, mislead or, or confuse people or anything. They just don't believe that. Now, I will tell you, because I've heard it from some of these people personally, that you, they, they do actually believe it, but they don't want to lose their job. Um, if you were in Mike Trevisio's class on soil biology, he mentioned this, that he discovered that uh, while they don't promote it, And they don't disseminate the knowledge. A lot of the soil scientists there actually follow the model that I follow that everybody says doesn't work behind the scenes, but they can't disseminate it because they would lose their job. Um, And it really comes down to, folks, that the devil doesn't want us to know the truth. It's always going to be a remnant because, and I can tell you personally, that the more you pursue the Life, the restoration and the increase of life, the more you're going to get hammered, um, and so you just that just comes with the territory, and you just the idea. If any, how many of you have been farming for a while? You didn't have any difficulties, did you? <laughs> um, how do you reconcile that with Jesus saying, uh, "My yoke is easy"? my burden is light? I'm not going to answer the question for you. I'll let you think about it. So, first of all, you have to determine if there's a correct model, what is that model? And then, is the lab that I'm utilizing, you know, utilizing that model? And then you have to ask the question as well, um, because... What I'm talking about, this this model that I'm talking about is called the Albrecht model. Okay, some of you have probably heard of it or heard about it. Um, Dr. Albrecht, this this actually was developed beginning back in the early 1900s, almost 100 years ago. He started this process. And one of the things he always said was, go to nature and let it teach you. Don't go to the lab and teach it. And over a period of about forty to fifty years, um, it was it was established. And we don't have the time to go into all of the, how that happened. I'll just simply say that he got to the point where he could take animals and he could make them infertile within a few weeks, and then he could turn it around and make them fertile again in two week, two or three weeks. He could take. Um, well, I just I like rabbits as a really good illustration because there's pictures of it. He'll take rabbits. Little rabbits, and within two or three generations, they're big rabbits. What I'm trying to get to you at is that any model is based on the preservation and the increasing of life. Any good model should preserve and increase life. And if it doesn't do that, there's a flaw. There's a flaw in that model. And so this was established over 40 to 50 years it's being practiced all over the world. All over the world. Most people, most people in agriculture have never heard of it before. There's a reason that they've never heard of it before. Because the people that fund agricultural research and the such won't allow it to be disseminated. It is not only not ignored, it is actively opposed I use that term actively opposed. I know this to be the case because uh, an individual, and when I was in an advanced training with this, an individual who ha- actually happened to u- work for a university was a chair in an, a you know land grant university. Was at that meeting and he stood up and he said, because uh, Neil Kinsey, who's the last surviving person that Dr. Albrecht actually trained himself, um, had been saying that you know this is. You, this is difficult to find sometimes. And it did it because it's opposed. And this man stood up in that, that class. And he said, I just want you to know that what he's saying is exactly true because I sat on that committee. And we actively tried to find, he's not on it anymore. He said, we actively tried to find ways to discredit it, to undermine it, to obscure it. Does the devil do that to the truth? So you're not, I'm not surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. Um, And one of the ways that they do that, see, he established that model based on very specific analytical and interpretive protocols, okay? So one of the ways that they discredit it is most of the labs that, and it's based on cation exchange, the cation exchange complex, the colloidal and humus root complex, because the root is actually part of that process as well, um, and so it's called cation exchange. The cation exchange model is, is typically what's, what it's called in general. But how you discredit it and how you undermine it is you take and you say you're using this model and you will run your analytics based on that, you, saying that you're using that model, but you change analytical and the interpretive protocols. And when you do that, you change the numbers. It's like now trying to compare an orange to an apple. You're trying to measure the, the quality of the apple by an orange. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And this is one of the most prominent things that's happened. It's not a question of a lab being incompetent. The technicians are not incompetent. The process is not incompetent. It's just coming to a different conclusion. And unless unless someone knows what those numbers mean in relation to a sound model, you're never going to hit that model. You're going to continue to miss it all the time. It's just that simple. And this happens over and over and over and then people start making excuses for, oh, well, the Albrecht model, it doesn't work. And, you know, and then you have agronomists who can't get it to work for growers and and then they they start saying, well, it's only a snapshot in time, and it really is not that big of a deal, and you, know, you can't really do anything. You always start hearing a thing, you can't really do anything about it anyway. That's a pretty sad statement, if, if that were true, that you can't do anything about you know, the condition in life. So, <clears throat> to the best of my knowledge, those protocols are only being run by one lab in the world anymore. And that lab even runs two-thirds of its analysis. That, it's only run that way for Kinsey Ag Services. The other half to two-thirds of their samples are run the way the other labs run them. Um, and I actually spoke personally to the, the lab owner, Bob Perry, and I asked him, I said, I said, are those numbers reliable? And he said, no. Here's the lab owner, he's the one running the lab and i said well if they're not reliable why do you why do you run it that way and I hear this answer because that's the way they want it that's the way they want it because that's the way everybody else is doing it The question that was asked is um, what do I mean by why aren't those numbers reliable? What what typically has happened is they've gone, instead of using very specific extractants for different elements, they've gone to a universal extractant. And whenever you go to a universal extractant, you're going to lose accuracy on on things. Some things are going to be more accurate than others, but it's a generalized it's a generalized extractant, so you're going to get more generalized answers. I know from experience, after 26 years, that good information matters. You cannot make good decisions if you don't have good information. You need to know that the information you're getting is accurate. Now, there's a lot of, hazard. There's a lot of things that can happen that can cause your information not to be, not to be accurate. You know, when you're pulling the sample, you can mess up. You can use a rusty trowel to dig it, and, and you're going to throw off your iron levels. You can put it in a paper sack, a bread sack, because you're, you don't want to, um, or a, um, like a sandwich bag, a paper sandwich bag. You're going to throw it off doing that. Why? Because you're going to get sodium out of the paper bag. You're going to get boron out of the glue in the paper sack, even though it's new, um, and, and it's going to throw it off. Pulling the sample at the consi- a consistent depth, pulling it so it actually represents the area that you're you're trying to find out about. There's a, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in the the, the sampling process that can make the, the lab analysis you know not as accurate as it could have been. Um, but then the second one is if you if, if it goes to a lab and the analytical protocols are are not consistent with the model, then it's not going to be accurate. And we're, we keep missing the target in a lot of ways, not just with soil. We're missing the target spiritually a lot of times with character. Because, and and what, why, did, why did the labs do this? Well, they're not necessarily, they were encouraged to do it. They're not necessarily saying, okay, well, we want to undermine the, a good model here and everything. They're doing it because people want things cheap and they want them fast. And they want it convenient. And honestly, brothers and sisters, we, we treat our spirituality like that sometimes. Amen. If it's too difficult, if it requires too much of us, well, you know, that's a little more than I want to give. It's you know, a little more than I want to commit. And so that's why they do it. And again, you know, it has nothing to do with the competence of the lab. I have to emphasize these things because please don't anybody go out here and say, oh, so-and-so said, that. I won't even mention other labs. Okay, I'll only mention the one that I use. I'm just saying to you that it has nothing to do with the competence of that lab. It just simply has to do with the fact that the analytical methods that the model was established on are no longer being applied, and so you don't have consistency there. You need a different set of model numbers. If somebody who's working with these other numbers can figure out you know, what they're supposed to be, then you could certainly use them. But remember, I also pointed out that by going to a universal extract and a generalized approach on it, you lose accuracy. And so you're not getting... Dr. Albrecht, when he developed this model, actually developed it to correlate to the field. And otherwise, what I mean by that is, if you measured and found out what was the condition was there and you you looked at the model and you determined what you needed to do, if you applied the right material to the field, it will show up on the next soil test. You will see the change, it should show up, it should correlate in the field. I can tell you that that doesn't happen the majority of the time with most of the soil tests people are trying to use to, to apply. Now there are exceptions to that only because you have to, you have to satisfy the chemistry of the soil before you're going to build available nutrition. The soil, and what I mean by that is I'm dealing with that personally right now. We run a highly weathered soil in Kentucky, and we've put on five to six hundred pounds of phosphate. We should have seen a, we should be in the optimum range with phosphate right now. We have only seen a hundred and fifty pound build applying that much phosphate. What happened? Well, Dr. Albrecht knew about this, and Neil knew about it because he told him. And so I asked Neil, he said, "What's going on?" He said, "There are some soils until the." The soil is satisfied. It will not become available. So there is, remember in that dream, Jesus said there's a science to the soil. And so we can go. So I started digging, pulled out the soil chemistry book, trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? What's, you know, what could be happening? Well, most likely in the highly weathered soil like it is, um, we've got free aluminum in the, in the triple plus species. We've got triple, uh, a triple plus charge on it or, uh, uh, yeah, triple plus charge on it, aluminum, or we've got iron, we've got high iron, probably with a triple plus charge too. And phosphorus has a triple negative charge. And that aluminum and iron in there is is not stable. And nature always wants to stabilize things, to balance them out and stabilize them. So what's probably happened is that phosphorus is just, grabbing onto that iron and grabbing onto that aluminum, producing aluminum phosphate and iron phosphate and precipitating it out. Um, but this is important. You know, sometimes when we become Christians and we start trying to do the right thing, sometimes all kinds of things start going wrong. And, and sometimes it's because there's some deep-seated deformity that has to be stabilized. And once that's stabilized, we're now building, I can correlate it exactly to what I put on and, and what's showing up in the next test now, but it took 500 pounds of, of phosphate being applied before that was satisfied. Everything we tend to, we tend to compartmentalize things and, and separate them out, and so you've got I need to can you guys help me with my time here? I't know my time is. Um, when are we supposed to stop? 10:30? Okay, so let me wrap this up. Um, We tend to compartmentalize things, but the interesting thing is people will ask the question, for example, uh, what is aluminum? You you would think aluminum is toxic, right? Did God create something that's toxic? No. It's just not in the place it's supposed to be. Aluminum is a structural component. It's like part of the factory. It's going to make the nutrients available to the plant. It's a structural component. It's part of the, 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 the clay crystal. And it needs to be where it's supposed to be. And when it is, it facilitates the availability of nutrition to the plant. It's not a nutritive element. It's a facilitative element. It doesn't belong in our food. It belongs in the soil where it can facilitate growth. Um, and so sometimes that stuff, kind of stuff, Those are there are some exceptions like that, and you have to kind of know, he already knew about it. He'd already seen these things happen, and, and the exceptions happen. And so I went and I looked at it, and I kind of figured it out. I have another interesting thing going on right now, because the Bible, I always go to the Bible, and I try to figure out, what, what did Jesus say in his parables? And so then I need to go to the soil and say, how does that happen here? And one of them is the, the, the parable of the talents, where, you know, you take your talents and you can multiply them, you can increase them. Well, how do we increase the capacity of the soil? You know, I'm not doing the soil fertility class on, on what cation exchange is and all of that, but how do I make the bucket bigger? How do I increase the capacity for life? That's our mandate, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're to increase. Um, and I'm actually having that phenomenon. I actually talked to another fellow has the same thing going on right now. We have kind of similar conditions, so I'm really interested to see what you know we've been talking about where my, what's called the cation exchange capacity, which we're going to get to here, the terms that we're going to need to know to to finish up. Um, Where my exchange capacity, my bucket keeps getting bigger. The capacity of that soil keeps getting bigger. And I've been wanting to understand how that happens because I haven't seen it happen a lot. I've I've heard of it happening. And so I went and I started clay, I went and started studying clay chemistry and how it works. the drilling industry, the oil industry and the mining industry knows a whole lot more about clay chemistry than agriculture does. Um, but you can go and look at how do clays degrade? What, what gets lost? What gets taken away? Well, silicon is one of those things that gets taken away and you lose charge. Iron and magnesium and zinc taking the place of aluminum in the crystal causes a collapse and a loss of charge and I'm going to talk about this on Sabbath, but in, in order to illustrate a principle, a spiritual principle and reality, um, we can actually get an increase, which we have to have all the time. I assume you guys eat pretty much every day. You nourish yourselves pretty much every day. You don't eat once a year and say, okay, I'm done. It's all taken care of. So we have to, we consume that increase. And so we have to continually have an increase. We have to continually receive so that we can, we can live. And so we have to have that increase. Well, you can get an increase through the, through the degradation of the soil. You can, you can degrade the clay colloids, you can degrade the humus, and you can orphan nutrients, and those nutrients give you your increase. But you just left that soil at a lower capacity for life to produce an increase. You've degraded it. Is that appropriate? To do? I don't think so. Um, so are you kind of kinda getting what I'm saying about what lab to use? You have to you have to decide, you know, what it is you're trying to achieve. If you just want to know what you need to grow a crop, then you have a lot of options. A lot of options to, to pursue. In fact, you can get a home test kit and you can test the pH and you can test the the phosphate and the potassium which is largely what they look at and then look at the crop you're going to grow and how much is required and see you know kind of where you are in the soil and and apply that stuff and you're good you go off that doesn't mean you're going to get a great crop and it doesn't mean you're not going to have problems that you're going to have to bring interventions to to, to try to deal with um, but if you really want to increase the capacity of that soil if you want to impart I use that term deliberately if you want to impart, a better condition to that soil, a more complete and balanced condition. The problem is that it's deformed. It's incomplete and it's imbalanced, just like you and I. We're incomplete and we're imbalanced and we're expressing that deformity. And God wants to reform us and the soil so that it can fully express the image of God is really what, it's, what we're supposed to do. So let's get to... There's, there's more that I could say, but we're, we're going to be out of time here. So um let's um oh, I forgot to put the thing on this so not do me a good. Here are some of the terms you need to be familiar with on a soil test. Okay, you have to be you have to kind of know what they what they're saying to you so you know, you know, how to relate to them. And the first one is cation exchange capacity. You will see it represented as written out like that. Sometimes you'll see it as CEC, sometimes you'll see it as TEC, sometimes you'll see it as TCEC. CEC is just cation exchange capacity. TEC is total exchange capacity. And you're going to ask the difference, what's the difference between the two? Well, it may not necessarily be anything, and there may be. And we're going to see in the next class, you know, what the difference is. Um, or TCEC, which is just total cation exchange capacity. Rather than saying total exchange capacity, they just say total cation exchange capacity. So they use different terminology. I typically use the TEC to, to demonstrate, to, to tell a person when they get the lab the, the soil recommendations with their lab results, that they have, we have measured the, the total cation exchange capacity, the total exchange capacity of that soil. If you don't do that, you don't know how big the bucket is. You don't know what the actual capacity is that you have to address. And so what happens if you think your bucket is a two-gallon bucket and it's really a three-gallon bucket and you put everything in there to fill a two-gallon bucket? Are you full? Have you done everything that you could? No, you're still short, a whole gallon. That was my dilemma. I actually have this increase in my capacity going on. I can't anticipate that, so I fill the bucket to where it says it is. And then I run into trouble that year because I discovered that the capacity had gone up and, and the bucket's not full enough. And I grow high-value, high-density crops. And it requires that everything be working. All cylinders have to be firing efficiently. And when you're doing that kind of long-term, high-density high crop, um, in particular tomatoes, cucumbers, stuff like that, um, When they get into the the, the vegetative phase, in other words, the plant phase, the the plant itself, the frame, and the reproductive phase at the same time, there's a lot higher demand for nutrition at that point. And, And if you lose balance, where the plant can't maintain, the mandate is, what is the mandate that God gave us? To be fruitful and multiply, to increase. Nature always follows that mandate. It will always try to produce an increase, to bear fruit, and so the plant will always direct all of the resources to, to bearing fruit. And if that means that the plant has to sacrifice resources, it does. This is what happens when a lot of people when a lot of people you know your plants are growing, they look great, you come into summertime, it gets a little hotter, it maybe gets a little drier, or it gets a little wetter, or you get a long stretch of, of of cloud cover, whatever like that, and all of a sudden everything starts going haywire. Well, one is you just exceeded the capacity of that soil to maintain life and fu- fully functional life there. You just exceeded it, stress. Very important lesson in that we have to learn because the stresses of life are going to increase. They're not going down. Um, and so if you, the plant's going to sacrifice, and now it's a matter of the plant's going to continue to try to bear fruit and it will continue to pull resources out of that plant if it has to, out of the plant, the frame, in order to try to bear that fruit. Sometimes it makes it to producing the fruit and sometimes it collapses before it can finish, finish the process. But that's what it's attempting to do, it's intending to do is to bear fruit, to increase. And so if you don't have that capacity there and you've, you've, you've established what you're going to grow based on what you thought you had there and all of a sudden you don't have it there, um, that's when you run into trouble. So you want to know what the actual capacity of that soil is. You want to know what you're working with. Um, so it's the capacity of, a, what is it, it's the capacity of a soil to hold positively charged cations. Cations are positively charged. So that's calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, hydrogen, um, and I put their quote other bases. These would be um, this could actually be aluminum. It could be iron, manganese, zinc, copper, um, cobalt, um, chromium. There's a, there's a bunch of other, but it's in very small quantities. And they have a way of calculating those combined based on other information to see how much of the bucket it's actually filling. But you need to know how big the bucket is because you're going to have to find out when we go to this next one. Base saturation percent. This is the percentage. Base is just another way of saying an alkaline forming um, element or alkaline forming ion as opposed to an acid forming one. Up on top I use the term cation. And they really should have used the term cation saturation percent here too because hydrogen is actually a cation. It's positively charged but it's acid forming. Produces acidity. That's what pH is. We'll look at here in just a second. Aluminum is a cation, but it produces acidity. It's acidic. Iron produces acidity, and so they're not all al- They're not all bases. They're not all alkaline-forming cations. So I'm not sure. This is just convention. Now they really should change the term to cation saturation percent, but they this is the, what they call it. But it's the percentage of the cation exchange capacity occupied by each cation element. So in other words, it's telling you what percentage of your bucket is filled with calcium, what percentage of your bucket is filled with magnesium and potassium and so on. Okay, so it's just the saturation percentage. In other words, what they're talking about with cation exchange is there's a charge on colloidal humus. There's a charge on colloidal clay. It's a negative charge and it attracts positively charged elements. And that's they should equal 100, yep. Now, there, there are cases where it will always add up to 100 on, on the test, but there is actually more than is on those, that colloidal complex in that soil. This is where you have to get into parent material and the disposition of that soil is something that we need to learn about ourselves. It, it happens in the soil just like it happens with us. We have a disposition, we have propensities. I have four adopted kids. And if you want to know for sure that you have the propensities and dispositions of your parents, try adopting some kids and trying to deal with the crazy stuff. Where in the world did that come from? Because it's from somebody else. (laughs) It's from the propensities and dispositions that they inherited, the epigenetic influences that they inherited from, from their parents and their grandparents and so on. But the soil is made up of a parent material. Whatever that parent material is, it has a disposition and it wants to express things. Things will grow... expression of that disposition. That's why we have to reform that, because what's being expressed is not always good fruit, and we need to change that. So does everybody follow so far those two things? Just think of a bucket. How big of a bucket is my soil? And then think of what part of my bucket is filled with this, and what part of my bucket is filled with that. So say, Half of my bucket is filled with calcium and, the, and a quarter of my bucket is filled with magnesium and a tenth of my bucket is filled with potassium. You see what I'm saying? If you were to take different colored sand and you started filling a bucket and you had a two-gallon bucket and you had, to, you had to divide it different colors of sand up and not exceed the bucket. This is where a lot of uh, contamination of groundwater and surface water and everything comes from is the applying of materials where there's no place for it to stay. And it, and it leaches away. Um, Okay, so let's jump down to pH. Most of you have heard of pH, I would assume. Everybody's kind of familiar with that term. It's a measure of the activity of hydronium. Most people see it as a hydrogen plus, they represent it as a hydrogen plus, but it's actually H3O with a plus charge. There's an extra hydrogen on the water molecule. Um, But it's a measure of the activity of hydrogen or hydronium H plus ions in the soil. And it can be measured based on, and this is another thing that you have to know, and we're going to talk about that in the next session. It can be measured as a water pH, and it can be measured as a salt pH. A salt pH will be a percentage point higher in general than a water pH. You need to know which one it is, because if you take a salt pH, it's going to mess up how they determine all this other stuff, as opposed to a water pH. But all it's telling you is how much hydrogen, how much exchangeable hydrogen is in that soil. That's all it's telling you. It's not telling you how much calcium is there. It's not telling you how much magnesium is there, not how much potassium. It's just, and when we look at the soil test, we'll, we'll go over that. So when, when you get a soil test in and it tells you your pH, what if it tells you you have a pH of 5.5? That's really acidic, right? That's really acidic. And what do most people do? They're going to put lime on it. Well, what lime? It's telling you, what what it's telling you here is, is that your bucket is too full of hydrogen ions. It's missing these other things. That's why the pH is so low. These are all, remember I said these are alkaline forming, or or base cations here, so they're going to alkalinize the soil as opposed to acidify it like the hydrogen does. Um, we'll, We'll do that in the next class a little bit more. Um, okay, so everybody gets the pH, pH thing. It's me- it's, all it's doing is measuring the, the exchangeable hydrogen in that soil. That's it. That's what it's telling you. Okay, and the, la- the next thing down here, organic matter percent. You'll see this on a soil test. It can be a measure of the total organic matter percentage or the colloidal humus percentage. It depends on what test they run. Most labs run loss on incineration LOI. That's going to give you total organic matter. That would include humus and whatever other residues or you know organic matter in the decomposition stage are there. The, the LOI uh, test will actually make your organic matter look better than it is. What you really want is a colloidal humus percentage, which is telling you what your stable humus level is. That's a Walkley-Black test, and it actually measures colloidal humus. Actually, the active, somebody was asking me about, the, um, Mike Driesio was talking about the active uh, organic matter in your soil. Colloidal humus is, is, is the active part because it's actually charged and it's holding nutritional elements. So you can get it either way. And sometimes people get it and they think that their organic matter is great, but it's just because they put a whole bunch on. It's not stable yet. It's not colloidal humus. It's not an active part of its soil. It's not a stable part of the soil. It's a, it's a transient um, material. And uh, let's see. We're going to have to quit here, but I want to go ahead and finish these terms. You're going to see the term parts per million here. And it's just like a percent is something out of a hundred, right? You know, a percent is something out of a hundred. Well, parts per million is just a part of a, mil- a million. So it's some part of a million. Uh, that's what it means. And it's generally multiplied. It's a, it's a way that the lab uses to represent it so that depending on where you are in the world, you can just generally multiply it by two and it will equal pounds per acre or kilograms per hectare just by multiplying by two. So it's just the way that they represent it so that it makes it a little bit easier to convert it. You know, If you're using the metric system, you can convert it to that. If you're using the English system, you can convert it to that. And the last one we kind of need to do, there's going to be some others, we'll just touch on them while we're actually looking at soil tests. ENR, Estimated Nitrogen Release, what this is, is the estimated amount of nitrogen that will become available throughout the season from soil organic matter. In other words, the, break, the, the breaking down of soil organic matter is going to release nitrogen. It's a calculated number. It's an estimate. If you have really good biology going, you have really healthy soil, and you've got really good biology, it's probably going to be higher. If you have really terrible conditions, it's probably going to be lower. And what all it's doing is telling you, you can kind of, depend on about that much nitrogen for your crop and then you'll know well how much more am I going to have to apply depending on what I'm, what I'm trying to grow on that. So does everybody follow those two things as well? Okay, we're about five minutes over so I'm gonna I'm going to stop the class and give you guys if we could just do a 10 minute break instead of a 15. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.